Dear Diary, today I take the next step, the next step in being an ADHD life coach at Indigo Hub. I can't believe it's happening. I want to build, create and discover a place for us to truly be ourselves. I think this journey will be... Dear Diary, welcome world to the Indigo Diaries and welcome to Series 3, The World Through Our Eyes with your host me, Tasha Hicklin. The Indigo Diaries is podcast is want to learn about neurodivergency through others and our own experiences. And really, really excited to be back and we're back with a new guest today. So we've been having quite a few new guests over the last few episodes and it really makes me happy because I, what I love about guests is it just, it, it's not only great guests to bring on the podcast, but also great guests for me to learn and also for me to learn from I already have my notebook ready to make notes as I always do and uh and that's no different today so welcome Lisa hi lovely to be here thank you for having me yeah excited so uh today we're doing a start in the conversation where we're going to start a conversation about a topic and dive right deep so Lisa is a chartered accountant with a corporate finance and HR background for over 20 years she held senior financial and operation roles before setting up her consultant business in 2020. Lisa is also autistic and ADHD, but managed to make it through to her 40s before she found this out. The diagnosis led to Lisa carrying out extensive research into neurodiversity and 2023 she trained as an ADHD life coach, which brought even more insight and reflections. So, I mean, my first question, I've just realised in your bio already tells me when neurodivergency kind of came into your life, but kind of just tell me kind of, you know, what brought on your diagnosis? Yeah, sure. I think as is uh, common with quite a lot of women my age, it was when our son was diagnosed and um, he was diagnosed when he was about age six with autism and ADHD. And because he was six and the ADHD diagnosis is quite questionnaire based, it's quite family history, asking lots of questions about how how you see the world, how you behave. A six year old can't really answer that. So the parent parent gets to do that. So I was sat there going through the big questionnaire. And as I guess for lots of people, you kind of go, oh, right, that's where he gets that from then. That That would be me then. Um, and so I went for a, a diagnosis and was diagnosed with ADHD then, which was back in 2016. And at the time, I was convinced that I didn't have autism as well. So knowing that he was diagnosed with both, mm-hmm. my my husband and I both looked into it. We um, We bought a book by Temple Grandin and it had the questionnaire at the back, the AQ questionnaire. And we both did that saying, let's see, we figured out where the ADHD comes from. And we both scored well below the threshold. Mm. So no, don't have autism, don't know where he's got that from. And it was only a few years later um, when he was kind of 10, 11. So starting to behave more as a small person rather than a child that my husband recognized some of the ways he was then seeing the world reminded him of someone and uh, (laughs) stood in the kitchen one day and said to me I've been noticing these things and I just wondered if maybe you might think you might have autism as well and I could see him like heading for the back door almost (laughs) like tin hat on thinking I'm I'm close to the door than she is I can escape if she's not very happy about the way this conversation's going and I think at the time I I mean I answered truthfully he said have you ever thought that I said well 
no, not really, because we both did that questionnaire and we were mm-hmm. so therefore I'd absolutely thought I didn't have autism as well. But I started to look into it a bit more because he'd said it. And um, I got a book, a, an autobiography by a lady who was diagnosed in her 40s as well. So similar mm-hmm. background to me. And just within the first chapter of the book, I was in tears when I just recognised tiny things that she was describing. And suddenly I realised that that's not actually how everyone sees the world. And mm. it was it comes back to my, my background of um, being in audit and, and corporate finance, where I spent most of my kind of early professional career living in hotels because you go from client to client you're working around the country around the world which in some ways is great ADHD fantastic yeah project to project loads of new things but every hotel that kind of anxiety around traveling around settling in around needing to know exactly where everything is and going into a hotel room and thinking oh, please don't let me be near the lift because if I can hear lift doors closing or pinging, I'm going to get no sleep. The lights need to be right. The ticking clock cannot have that. I've got to be finding the battery. How can I get the battery out of this clock because I won't sleep? And it was all of those things that she described, literally the ticking clock, everything. And and I suddenly realized, oh, right, that's that's autism. That's not what everyone does that's not how everyone experiences hotels um yeah so I after that I did a bit more research and then again went to get a formal diagnosis but both times with the ADHD and the autism once I looked into it it to me it was so obvious Mm. and it made me think quite sad really to think why does no one spot this how did I get to my 40s without anyone having any clue what was going on yeah and I'm really curious because obviously you and your husband did that questionnaire and you got quite low you know what made you think you know it's strange to go from that and go no I've not got autism because we've done this you know we've done this uh test to then oh my goodness you know reading this book one chapter cry it like what do you think happened there it's a great question it's one that that I've reflected on a lot since and um after I after I got my autism diagnosis and actually kind of a year or so afterwards, I decided to go back and do that questionnaire again. Now I appreciate that knowing I was autistic, I probably looked at the questions in a different way, but I also know I looked at the questions in a different way in the sense that I looked at them properly. And what I realized was I was masking so well Mm -hmm. that I was masking from myself as well, because I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. And I sometimes use um, glasses as an analogy when I'm doing training on neurodiversity. And I say, I've worn glasses since I was 17. And the reason I knew I needed glasses at 17 is because I started to learn to drive. And when you learn to drive, there's a specific test. You've got to be able to read a number plate at this distance. Mm. So there's a benchmark there. And I couldn't quite read that number plate. I wasn't far off, but I couldn't quite read it. So Mm. I got glasses at that point. But until you have a benchmark, you don't know how far you are within or outside of that benchmark. So I looked back at those questions and when it asked things like how well you can tell what someone else is feeling, 
Mm. You know, it's those kind of questions. And, and I used to go, I'm great at that. <laughs> and, you know, because I genuinely thought I was because I'd spent my entire life obsessing about how everyone else might be feeling, yeah. which I now understand is because I was trying to learn the rules of how to be, how to yeah. exist. If someone else looks like they might be feeling this, then this is how I should behave in return. Yeah. And it was me writing my rule book. But when you first do that questionnaire and it says, how good are you at this? I genuinely said, really good at that. You know, how are you in social situations? Great. Yeah. It doesn't say, do you then kind of collapse in a heap afterwards because you're so exhausted? You, you just yeah. don't put those things together. So I went from, I think the, I think the score, the cutoff is 32, I think, for kind of mm. might might be autistic. And when we first did it, I scored 26. And when I did it again, I scored 42. Wow. So, so different. So, different. so yeah, I literally was masking it from myself. And, and I'm sure so many other people do as well, because how do you know what you're supposed to be scoring yourself against? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and in, yeah, I, I really agree with that. It's that awareness, isn't it? You know, when the, because we just think we're coping, we just think we're getting, you know, we could, we can handle a day at work we're fine but then on a Friday night you're absolutely exhausted and mm -hmm. this and this and what's the cost of that and all those coping mechanisms and things that we have to learn and the inventions we have to do to get through we just think is normal but actually it's not normal most people just go and do it and we're yeah. just there struggling or coming mm -hmm. up with our own rule book and that's when we start to to see it when you you know when you undercover or you put those glasses on yeah so what I'm, I'm curious though, what made you then transition to coach? Um, it's been part of my overall career journey. So again, not untypically for <laughs> neurodivergent <laughs> folk, <clears throat> I've moved from one thing to another. Again, I didn't really connect the dots at the time, um, but I started, I trained at Deloitte, so you can't really start bigger than yeah. global professional services firm and trained as an accountant in audit found it unutterably dull that's an ADHD thing so as soon as I could got out of that went into corporate finance which is fascinating project after project ridiculous deadlines working through the night all the things that really actually appeal to an ADHD brain and then in 2009 I moved into industry for the first time and I had roles in industry across started in finance but then I went into HR quite unusual for an accountant to get, yeah. then go and get qualified in HR um so I was doing learning and development I was running people services I was doing job evaluation so looking at how people how you design roles how you design roles to fit together how you gauge the size of a role and I just found all that really fascinating of how you can help people develop and how you can help mm. people find the roles that work for them and also helping people understand how they can move around in an organization that, yeah. that there's not just one way of you wait and then you get your manager's job. Yeah. There are so many different things you can do and it's about skills rather than specifics of a job. And I was fascinated with learning styles, thinking styles, psychometric tests, couldn't get enough of them. A lot of people hate them. But for me, I was like, oh, how many more ways can I find out how my brain works? This is great. <laughs> and uh, So <clears throat> over time, I kind of covered all the different areas of business. But my real fascination was always people. Mm. So I set up my consulting business in 2020 
and I've been doing a lot of consulting, but also business mentoring yeah. and kind of helping new businesses, helping business owners and a focus on owner managed businesses where they're looking to kind of exit mm. in three to five year timescales, which means you've got to be bringing through a senior management team who are going to take over. So I was doing executive coaching yeah. without ever having had any formal coaching training. And so bringing that together with the neurodivergence and just made a decision um, at the end of last year, October last year on World Mental Health Awareness Day mm. that I was going to just start talking more openly about my own yeah. neurodivergence to advocate people in the workplace because mm. our son is now just turned 14. It's not that many years until he's going to be coming into the workplace and I want it to be a different workplace than the one I went through, one where he will be supported and where he won't have to mask the way that I did. Um, mm. And so it kind of made sense from there to train as a coach, but to train as an ADHD coach specifically mm. so that I can support myself, support him, support yeah. other people. And so many entrepreneurs who I was working with already are neurodivergent. It lends itself the creativity, the, mm. the fact that very many people can't actually cope in that corporate environment and therefore set up their own businesses. So I was already working with quite a few neurodivergent yeah. entrepreneurs. So it all kind of all came together and, and feels like it's that final piece yeah. that gives me all those skills I need. Yeah, like the final jigsaw piece just to kind of go right I, well I've already kind of I already know the picture but it's just that last piece in the middle boom ah, I can see it now or kind of where I need to be so that kind of I suppose that that was quite a nice pivot <laughs> not meaning to be a pivot into workplace and advocacy because obviously that's why that's why one of the reasons why um you came well you're just a fascinating person anyway but I think one oh, of the reasons <laughs> is workplace because I like I my I don't I've been in the workplace but I don't really know much about that I'm more education in school so mm -hmm. when I get to speak to people about workplaces I find it quite interesting to be honest it's quite the same as schools <laughs> but I find it quite interesting so what like what sort of things do you find neurodivergence find really hard in the workplace um different things for different people mm. for me and I think for many people from speaking to them it's it's kind of like the admin side mm. of role so coming from a professional services background where you've got client work and you've got admin mm. and the client work is fascinating and as I said project to project is always something new and you're always delivering for someone else mm. <clears throat> and for me that's a real key real key value of mine is doing things for other people and helping other people but to the detriment of doing things for myself because they're in that kind of boring unnecessary doesn't no one else benefits from it so almost why bother yeah so I always struggled with the admin side things and things like keeping time sheets which mm. back in the day when I started was a very manual process because yes. I'm getting a bit old these days whereas now I use you know I use a fantastic app now that helps me track my client time and and you think yeah if we'd had those back then I might not have hated it so much <laughs> yeah um, so it's that side of things and for a lot of people with ADHD who I speak to they really struggle in meetings so where there are long meetings they really struggle to focus mm. 
for me personally, that's not something that I have such an issue with. And I don't know whether that's because of the autism as well, mm. that if I'm focused in a meeting and what I tend to do is make absolutely copious notes and I always have done. And I don't know if that's because I didn't trust my memory or if that was effectively a coping strategy that by writing detailed notes the whole time, it keeps me focused on the meeting. Mm. So for me, I'm not too bad. And and I guess perhaps that comes from a background where I've always had to have long mm. meetings. So I had to get used to that. But I know for a lot of people, the meetings, particularly where there's that kind of culture of having a meeting for the sake of having a meeting we're having a weekly meeting and we're all going to sit here for an hour even if we're ultimately talking about absolutely nothing mm. that can be pretty tricky mm. for ADHD brains who are just this is boring and why are we here and I could be doing something else more interesting and actually in the workplace rather than finding ways to help ADHDers sit through an hour's meeting just don't have the meeting if, if everyone's bored and struggling to stay focused, then it's probably not a good meeting, to be honest. It's yeah. kind of sack the meeting or make the meeting half an hour rather than saying, how can we, shall we get some fidget toys so the ADHDers can stay focused? It's like, why don't you listen to them and, and sit, sit back and think, wow, why are people finding this meeting so so intolerable? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think, sorry, just something you said there, I think that that's what a lot of people do is they just try and like keep the same system but kind of just throw things at it like oh you can have a rest is that the same at school you have a rest break you have a fidget toy but actually if you made the lessons or the meetings more fun more approachable more interesting more modalities less time it actually would the person with ADHD actually needs that but everybody else would also benefit because everybody hates a boring meeting exactly yeah. exactly it's just other people are better at hiding it <laughs> yeah or I've got the more dopamine to actually be able mm-hmm. to tolerate it a lot more yeah. so they just throw kind of you know fixes at it rather than trying to look at the system mm-hmm. yeah so you so you got work and admin like what what do you find kind of with with the workplace you said talks about advocacy right you wish you'd had that when you mm-hmm. were when you when you started work what sort of advocacy do you think you would have needed I think an openness to talk about it Mm. and so whilst there is so much more awareness and understanding of neurodivergence these days there is still a long long way to go in workplaces yeah you have some businesses that have really got with it and a lot of the kind of smaller, more entrepreneurial, more creative businesses are very good mm. at supporting neurodivergent staff and at embracing neurodiversity as a whole. But that's because of the nature of the businesses. Whereas mm. if you look at the more traditional businesses, the much bigger businesses, I think there, there is a really, really long way to go. And <clears throat> it's still seen as people wanting accommodation so it's still seen as almost a burden on the organization and oh what's it going to cost and what I try to do when I'm speaking and training is people say to me like when they invite me in to speak and I'll say okay that's great what's your budget for a speaker because something that's really important is that 
we don't all go and speak for free just to try and raise awareness because that in itself is discounting the value that we bring and when I say okay that's great what's the budget quite often they'll say oh well it sits within DEI and that's kind of an aside it's not a fee earning area of business so it doesn't have the same kind of budget as for training as these professional areas and and I always say okay coming from a finance background as well which is helpful when you're having these kind of conversations this isn't about the budget you have for entertaining your staff by bringing in speakers this is about the cost to the business of not investing in this there are costs in every regard there are costs of staff sickness so people going off with nervous breakdowns I think I had four over the course of my professional career diagnosed with anxiety and depression each time which I don't believe I had I had undiagnosed ADHD but that time you know I was in very well-paid jobs and I was on full sick pay out of the organization for on one occasion a couple of months that is a Mm. big cost to an organization and then they have to cover the role and then if staff leave they have to cover the gap they have to recruit recruitment costs a fortune as well Mm. it's all inefficiency for a business as well as not getting the benefits that neurodivergent staff can bring so it's about saying if you support the challenges if you create the environment that works and as you said Natasha if it works it works for everyone it's not actually creating this weird environment that everyone else will hate it's an environment that works for everyone and then you get the strengths you get the benefit of of the amazing strengths that neurodivergent people can bring yeah and i'm fine i find that we kind of is a world <clears throat> so as a world anyway we try and put plasters on things right reactive rather than be proactive and it, like you said there you know someone coming in let's just entertain the staff or you know let's just throw a fidget toy at it or let's just throw an accommodation at it but actually, if you change the whole way the environment is, the whole way things are, you know, all this stuff, it that's going to be, you know, you're not going to get people that go and burn out. You're not going to get people that need this. You know, if you open the door kind of thing to your staff, to the environment and change it, it does take a lot more upfront to do all that, right? You've got to really think about changing, changing this and this and this. But I, I don't know about you. I feel like sometimes there's a resistance to change. Yeah, there's there's always a resistance to change in and in the bigger organizations that resistance to change can come from the fact that there are so many policies in place mm. and actually by necessity because if you've got thousands of staff you actually need to have some pretty clear policies yeah in place to be able to run an organization and so sometimes it's kind of the bureaucracy the process that people have to go through to make that change Mm. and that means it does take time it does take effort and you do need people who are really committed to making those changes but that's where understanding that the changes are benefiting an organization and and that Mm. the outcome will be very positive that it's not about making change that's actually just going to be a big cost to an organization yeah and that's the thing isn't it it's trying to be you know because we need we need this 
Mm. And one of my favorite quotes is, I'm, I'm looking at my wall because I'm a wall, I'm not just turning. <laughs> Even though no one can see that, but you can. <laughs> but, you know, when a flower doesn't grow, you fix the environment at which it grows, not a flower. And we're always mm-hmm. trying to fix ourselves and trying to fix things, but actually we just need to change the system. So like what sort of things when you, obviously I'm not going to ask you for your, you know, how, what do you do when you go and present? Because that's your stuff. But like what sort of things are really important for businesses and people to know in the workplace? Um, so when I present at the minute, a lot of it is quite basic awareness. Mm. I think it's easy for those of us who work in this arena to think that there is far more awareness out there than there is because we are surrounding ourselves with it all day. Yeah. When I open my social media, it's full of information about neurodivergence but that's because that's the people I follow and that's the people I connect <laughs> with and that's the, yeah. that's the pace I comment on and that I write myself. And therefore, yeah. of course, my feeds are full of those things because that's how the algorithms work. But outside of that, there are so many people whose feeds never come across any of this stuff. And people who in workplaces, in businesses are not on social media at all. Yeah. And, and I think that's also quite easy to forget for those of us who are kind of in a creative space running our own businesses where social media is a really key part of what we do Mm -hmm. most of my business clients don't use social media at all they might have a LinkedIn presence just so if someone looks them up you can see that they're there but they are running businesses they don't have time to be on social media or if they are it's not actually them it's a marketing team running social media for them or or even an outsourced team. So I worked in a marketing business for a while and that business would be running social media platforms Mm -hmm. for the CEOs of businesses. So it's not even someone in the same organization who's actually running the social Mm -hmm. media. So there really isn't that awareness and that understanding. And one of the things that really struck me and and professional services is my background so it's what I know everything about but also from reflecting on it it's an industry where I feel that there is a real lack of awareness and there's a real perception of of what neurodivergence means and not necessarily in a very positive way Mm. and something that really struck me when I first started talking when I did my big LinkedIn this is me post of of saying this is me the number of people firstly who were super supportive which was amazing so so many people contacted me but the number of people who said I had no idea which is fine because until I got diagnosed neither did I so (laughs) I I can't say to anyone you should have spotted it because I didn't spot it but um, a couple of people who said surely you can't have ADHD because you've got such an amazing attention to detail. So I did corporate finance. My job title was due diligence director. I did due diligence on businesses. I was looking at every aspect of the detail, reviewing finances, reviewing financial projections. And because of autism, my data and analytical processing skills are off the chart yes and because of ADHD I have that hyper focus particularly in projects where you've got the deadlines where you've got the this is really important to something Mm -hmm. 
from that dopamine perspective, that is fantastic. Yeah. So things that neurodivergence actually gives to me as strengths, and I don't use the word superpower, I find that entirely unhelpful compared with the debilitating daily struggles that we all go through to bring the strengths to the table. So I used to use the word and then I realized it was really, really unhelpful. But I have those strengths and businesses have really benefited from those strengths that I have brought to those roles. And I struggled with the challenges and they couldn't have helped me at the time because I didn't know about it. So I couldn't have asked for help. It wasn't like they were deliberately not helping me. It simply wasn't, wasn't a thing, but it really hit home to me of, of that perception, particularly with ADHD. I think when I say I'm autistic people, because I'm highly qualified, I don't have learning problems where some people do. So I do appreciate that autism has, has helped me as well as hindered me. I think because of that, when I say I'm autistic, people look at me and think, oh, of course she's great at maths and she's good at this and and they see that almost as kind of a strength yeah whereas when I say ADHD just the wording the language still springs to mind of oh right you can't pay attention to anything then and and you think no I can sometimes (laughs) sometimes I can't because I'm just all over the place if like doing admin I cannot pay attention to admin because it's just boring so I will be off on all kinds of things but when I am in that hyper-focus mode, when I'm doing those things, that is a massive strength in the kind of roles that I had. And, and also the deadlines, the things like crisis management. So I've been kind of operations director in businesses and, and you're doing the disaster recovery plans and you put it all down on paper. But actually when something happens, when you're actually in that kind of scenario of something has happened, we need mm. to deal with it right now very many people actually go to pieces there and and can't really think straight but actually ADHD is a fantastic in a crisis because again massive dopamine rush and where everyone else is is all over the place we can actually get really super focused and be like right I'm in charge this needs to happen fantastic I can see absolutely (laughs) what needs to happen and when you do this you go there and it's so when I speak, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to help businesses to understand. And and that perception of people seeing me differently. And suddenly it was quite scary yeah, coming out yeah. on LinkedIn. And if I'd still been in the workplace, I question whether I would have had the courage to do it. Mm. Because I'm running my own business, I can ultimately say what I want to and I can choose who I work with. And I've made yeah, that decision yeah. that if potential clients have an issue with my neurodivergence, then they're not the right clients for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, there was so many things you said there, but the crisis, I always say to people, if there's an emergency, call me. <laughs> if there's something boring, don't call me. Emergency call. <laughs> but I think that's the thing, and I loved when you said superpowers, I cheered, because, yeah, I, I, I really, really can't stop. Like, I understand that people do it and people say it, but it does take away from the hardship. So I just went through it. So, but because ADHD and I'm being honest, is such a paradox, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways we're so good at it, some ways we're not. I think that's why a lot of what I'm finding a lot of people don't, can't understand because they're like, well, how can you be this, this, this? But because they don't understand the brain part of it, they just see the behavior and that's it. And I think that 
it's see it's funny because we're talking about workplace but already I'm thinking about teachers at school. <laughs> like, but like I did training last week and I think the awareness is more key than any strategy or any accommodation because if you don't have that awareness you're not going to allow anything like you're not going to allow people to be themselves and and if you have the awareness then you you get something from it because yeah. you as a business you get your neurodivergent members of staff to work at their best and it's um it's interesting that you say that because i've been doing some work um with a, an international schools partnership recently and um they were actually creating a, a video box set about called hacking neurodiversity that i was filmed mm. for at the start of the year and um it's about students teachers parents professionals talking about their own neurodivergence mm. and talking about how to understand it learn about it love it live with it and one of the things that really struck me was the partnerships director there who kind of was behind the videos he's autistic himself his son is autistic and he was talking about his his role in teaching and that he had stopped being a face-to-face teacher and gone into the partnerships role because of that admin side of things and because Mm -hmm he sounds like he was an absolutely amazing science teacher and would be there building robots and making the lessons so interactive because that was what appealed to his brain and and his thinking style. But something that really struck me was he was saying that when he had to mark homework and mark essays, the only way that he could keep focused on it was to read them backwards from the bottom and it really jumped out at me and, and that struggle of, of being amazing mm. and being able to deliver really exciting lessons that really engage the kids, but then not having that support for how to get through that admin and that ultimately led to him moving into a diff still within things and still doing amazing things and, and raising the awareness. But that really, really struck me of, of like, wow, you are literally reading things backwards to be able to pay attention, finding that strategy for yourself. Yeah, but the problem is, is after a while, well, that, that resonates with me, that's why I came out teaching. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it resonates with me a lot because that's when a lot of people can, after a while, if you don't come up with that hack or mm-hmm. can get very bummed down in the marking and in the admin mm-hmm. and in the side of it that doesn't work. And then when you get bummed down in that and you start to get burnt out because you're using more effort in that, then that light, that fire, that thing that you're good at of why you're at that job goes. Yeah. And it's just if businesses and people could just see that actually we need to harness those strengths and help and put things in place mm-hmm. for those things like marketing the things that we're not so good at, then you will get the strength and that will be the highlight because what I find is so many people just then get stuck in that negativity spiral. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, in businesses in general, there's this perception of what a role is and what you should be able to do within a role. And that was one of the things that even before my diagnosis, I was always interested in saying, if you have a really small business, people have to kind of be a jack of all trades. You've got to be able to wear all of the hats. You've got to just do whatever is necessary when you're Mm -hmm. starting a business. And then as a business grows and you recruit more staff, 
it's quite easy for businesses to think, okay, this is what we've got and this is the staff and these are the roles that they're doing. And then we're going to bring in two more people. So we'll create these new roles. Mm. And then you carry on doing that. And you end up with people who are still trying to do all kinds of things, even though a business has grown. And I always advise my clients that as they expand, as they get to that kind of point where they start to take on more staff, look first at the staff that you've got and the roles that they're doing and actually ask them, which parts of those roles motivate them? Which parts do they feel they're good at? Do they feel they're being stretched enough? Do they have other skills that we might not even know about because it wasn't part of what was in that role? Therefore, we're not asking them to bring that to work with them. And look at all of those things. And rather than just adding a new role into the organization, change all of the roles. Find the things where everyone can bring their strengths because whilst admin is not my thing, for other people admin is what they do and they're fantastic at so rather than having two people with two roles each trying Mm -hmm. to do everything have one person doing the out there the facing the training the teaching and the other person doing the admin and the total of that is way way more output way more engagement than those two people trying to do everything themselves and then you just multiply that across an organization and to me it takes a bit of thought at the start yeah but that investment in doing that you can get such positive returns and from doing all the job evaluation that I did and training in that that gave me such a clear Mm. perspective of, of how to design roles and of the things that go into roles it's not about can you use excel It's about what level of know-how do you need? What level of responsibility? What level of decision-making? And each of those will be some people's strengths and other people's weaknesses. And and matching roles to people's strengths, everyone would benefit from that. Yeah, looking at the individuals rather than try... It's the same thing again I always come back to is rather than trying to force the system, change the person into the system, just change the system, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a baby's toy here where it's, you know, where, you, where you've got um, the shapes and then mm-hmm. you put the shapes through the holes. Yes. I always use it and I'm like, well, one of my coach friends told me about it and she's like, why are we trying to force a flower into a square when we just need to find the flower? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is it's the thought at the start. It takes a lot of thought at the start. It takes a lot of investment at the start. And I feel that that's where the resistance is because it does take a lot of thought, time, effort, change, all that that's why I find a lot of places don't want to change the system because it's a lot to start with but there's an interesting I read something recently where we use the term don't about trying to put a a square peg into a round hole and we always say you need to find the square hole for the square peg but I read something recently about the actual origin of that term that I hadn't known and um, I think it's actually a term where putting a square peg into a round hole in some instances actually makes it stronger and I found that really fascinating of of we look at it as just no we've got to find the square holes Mm. but it really struck me as saying actually we are the square pegs but sometimes if we do kind of try and go into those round holes we can it's almost like you change you change the whole you make it something different so it's it's something I've been reflecting on of thinking 
it's great. I kind of contradict myself sometimes and saying, yeah, we should we should find the roles that fit everyone. But then also by disrupting things every now and then. By almost breaking a system mm. that might lead to a discovery of new and different roles that we hadn't even thought of in the first place or new and different skills that we hadn't thought of. Yeah, it's like bringing every individual together. And then mm. like carving a new hole, really, you know, like almost, you know, bringing everybody's strength and everybody's stuff to the game and then, you know, no division or not. And and then trying to carve their own hole. I like that. Mm. I like being challenged into different perspectives. <laughs> so as we're coming to like the last five minutes here, like what what is it that you kind of want to any kind of summaries or kind of last thoughts that are kind of coming to you? For me, it's just about continuing to raise to raise awareness and continue to encourage dialogue mm. and trying to find the ways that we can get our voices heard in those areas as I said that that just aren't on social media those areas where we need to find a different way to get to those organizations to to bring that awareness mm. to people and I think the more the more people do just talk about it the more the more we do do social media because ultimately whilst some people aren't on it there will be someone who is who will then go into a workplace and mention something and it's just finding those those little ins to start the conversations yeah yeah literally start the conversation yeah and that's what we're doing today you know it's it's all about just starting the conversation to get the awareness to then then hopefully the domino effect of the butterfly effect where one person boom 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 mm-hmm. and then it hopefully will start a new system or start something new or start something growing or something yeah so what Lisa what kind of encouragement are you leaving us with today so I've got I've got two things one one is some of my own words but another one is a quote that that I really really like from Harvey Bloom who's an American journalist who said that neurodiversity may be every bit as crucial for the human race as biodiversity is for life in general who can say what form of wiring will be best at any given time and I I really love that of thinking who do we need in the room at any time we we Mm. never know and my own kind of little little words that that I put in quite a lot of the training that I do is is explaining neurodiversity and neurodivergence that each of us is unique together we're neurodiverse some of us are neurodivergent but we all want to belong and through understanding embracing and empowering neurodiversity you can just be you and I'll just be me and we'll all belong wow that's amazing oh wow I really like that I mean I like both but I really like your words oh thank you I'm after this uh that's a really nice way to see it. yeah we are all, all neurodiverse but some of us are neurodivergent and yeah and it, and it is it's about you as being us then you, other people being them and then figuring that out together yeah thank you so much lisa i have wrote, wrote lots of notes again Anyways, um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure it's absolutely flown by <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> it always does it always does well that means we've obviously been having a good time so <laughs> i'll take that <laughs> but really appreciate so where can listeners find you 
Uh, you can find me, my main platform is LinkedIn. Um, so it's Lisa Care, or you can find me at adhdbrain.coach. That's on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook. And my website is www.adhdbrain.coach. Nice. And it's funny because when I always found that I know my website over and over again, but when people ask me, I really like think about it, like, wait a minute, what is it? Yeah. So all that will be below as well. So don't worry, you don't need to be getting with an iPad, just have a look in the information below. But thank you so much, Lisa. I've really, really enjoyed this as always. Thank you. Me too. Thanks, Natasha. So in two weeks, we'll be actually we won't be dropping a new one because uh this will be the new year but um we will be dropping a new one very soon very shortly um either from series one or series three if you're interested in coming on as a guest or you have questions or you want the world to hear your story in series one then please reach out through our social media avenues and email come learn listen and experience through not my eyes but our eyes why not have a great week and like we say like we've said here just be you we're all unique and we've just got to keep doing that and we're out. Dear Diary, as Indigo Hub's process goes on, it makes me stop and wonder, could there be more for us? More light, more experience, and more ways to see the world through our own eyes. I think this journey 